every time I try to get out, they pull me back in. Well, m maybe not every time. You know, oh, occasionally maybe. Well, okay, let's, let's just be honest, rarely. Rarely do they actually pull me back in. They got some neat stuff, but this is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I'm your host, Jay Arnold. Welcome to episode 15. In this episode, I speak with Mike Hobbs about what it would take for us old GW fanboys to get back into it. As always, the Veteran Wargamer is brought to you by King's Hobbies and Games and Special Artisan Service Miniatures. King's Hobbies and Games is your premier provider of premium painting and hobby supplies for the serious gamer, painter, modeler. If you haven't already, I would highly recommend you take a look at the Facebook page for Special Artisan Service Miniatures in particular. Tim is doing an outstanding job of really taking subjects from today's headlines and getting them produced for the modern wargamer. And if you take a look over there, it's, it's pretty evident that he's really paying attention to what the customer wants and is willing to to shell out some some dough for so just to t take a look over the last couple days or last week of posts uh, we've got a 28 mil French Foreign Legion Trooper uh, we've got T55 model that's uh, ready to get ready to get onto the 3D printer is working on some Spetsnaz figures an RG31 which is one of the earliest types of MRAPs he's got the AMX10 uh, French wheeled tank uh, it's got uh, this is a really interesting subject. With a, it's a semi with a T55 turret strapped on the back where the fifth wheel is. You know, taken from an actual photograph of a vehicle, I believe in Libya. A really astounding subject. Now, this and many, many more. It's it's really interesting to see what Tim's not only providing those subjects that aren't really produced by anybody else but he's doing it quickly and efficiently and effectively with feedback from you, the modern gamer. So check it out, Special Artisan Service Miniatures page on Facebook. Uh, you're going to go to facebook.com and search for Special Artisan Service Miniatures, uh, or you can always check out the link uh, on the show notes. So with this episode, I'm doing something a little bit different. I've included a review of a product. So have a listen. Let me know what you think. Um, just an editing note. Um, I said Grimdeep in the in my uh, review. Of course I mean Grim Dark. And rather than worry about going back and trying to match the audio up just perfectly, I'm I'm just disclaimer now, in the heat of the moment I said Grim Deep and not Grim Dark. So Keep that in mind as you go through. I, I, I do sometimes know what I'm talking about, and this is one of those instances I just said the wrong thing. So I apologize for that. Go ahead and take a listen. Uh, if you've got any feedback for this review, let me know. If you want me to keep doing reviews, if you don't want me to do reviews at all and stick with my previous format, that's fine. I, I'm wanting to make this show uh, responsive to you, the listener. So with that in mind, here's a review.
and that's what 2.2 kilos of book sounds like striking my tabletop. The 2.2 kilos of book in question is the Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader reprint recently issued by Games Workshop. Now, everything I've read online indicates that this reprint is from a scan of an archival copy of the original Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader that Games Workshop had at their Nottingham headquarters. The reprint itself is available at Warhammer World in Nottingham. I was lucky enough to have my copy picked up for me and sent to me by Simon Tonkis, who lives there in Nottingham. And how do I know it's 2.2 kilos? Because that's what it weighed when Simon put it in the postal system there in the UK to send over here. Now, the book itself, aside from being 2.2 kilos physically, is the same, same dimensions as the original book and is a much, and is a much better book just from a physical standpoint. The paper the individual pages are printed on is a much higher quality than the original uh, hardback book. Uh, the binding is definitely much better. Those of us who had the original Rogue Trader book know that it didn't take long for the pages to begin falling out. And you know, you can go online and find all sorts of blog posts about folks who either took a three-hole punch to the pages and put them in a notebook or uh, put them in a uh, document protectors like I did with, with my copy. Now, when it was scanned, they did a very, very fine job of scanning the artwork. The, the color pages are vibrant. The black and white illustrations are, are crisp. The text is extremely crisp. Um, it's, for the most part, it's as good as the original was. Now, the original, of course, um, if you're familiar with how uh, the printing process works. The original book was definitely done with traditional paste-up technique and a process camera and you can still see some of the artifacts in the in the images from that process if you know what to look for. Uh, for example, along the edge of any photograph um, or illustration there might be just a little tiny almost imperceptible line unless you know what you're looking for. Uh, some of the color in the book. Uh, original book was done with uh, different colored screens and gels and if you knew what you're looking for you could see some of those. Now some of that's been cleaned up. As far as the reproduction is concerned my only complaint is and this is in particular on, on some, not all, but on some of the black and white photographs and illustrations there are some artifacts from the scanning process um, either due to you know, no telling, just the way the lines meet up or since they were using uh, screens for some of the grayscale, something called a moire effect takes over and you get these repeating lines uh, through the images and, and again that's that's my only complaint about the reproduction itself. The book overall is just gorgeous. Any person that has an interest in 40k uh, should probably pick it up. A Games Workshop fan I would say would probably want to pick it up. Um, if you previously had one of the original printings, either the hardback or the softback of the Rogue Trader book, you'd probably want to go ahead and pick it up also. Now, it's not cheap. It is 35 pounds, and then depending on who actually picks it up for you, they might have to mail it to you, so you've got that additional expense. So it ended up being 50 pounds for me, 
to have Simon pick it up and mail it to me. Thankfully, due to the current exchange rate, uh, it ended up being about $63 for me. Now, normally I probably wouldn't pay that kind of money for a game book, especially one that clocks in at just about 280 pages, but I don't have my copy of Rogue Trader anymore, so it was definitely, it's, it's definitely nice to have. I'm, I'm glad it's in my collection again. Speaking of the reproduction, I mean, they've even got the original blue perforated heavy I don't it's not quite cardstock but it's heavier heavier stock paper with the battle at the farm scenario scenario briefings for the for the orc and space marine players uh, it's got advertisements in the back for the original imperial space marine plastic set the the classic RTB01 box as well as the RTB02 space orc raiders metal uh, miniatures um, which could be yours, that's right, 30 plastic space marines for the low, low price of £9.95 or I think it was 17, 17 metal space orcs for also £9.95. Back in those days that translated to $20 each. You're certainly not getting these items at those prices anymore. So, it, it's, even if you weren't into 40k back in those days, it's worth picking up because it's Sure, granted, a lot of the background fluff and whatnot has been superseded in more recent editions. But, you know, this is before the Days of Chaos. You know, the Eye of Terror back then was just a, a warp anomaly. And, yeah, they talk about different type of warp creatures, but there's not necessarily a, a specific threat. You know, you don't have corn or Zinch or Slanesh or Nurgle. I don't know. I've I've spoken about this before on one of my on an older blog. I'll I'll post a link in the show notes about uh, my problem with Grim Deep. But uh, as mentioned previously, also you know it does have a section on Hell's Reach, and that that is something I'm going to be exploring in my own gaming uh, here in the near future. Uh, from a gaming standpoint, the rules themselves are it's not a complete rule set. This is definitely not a complete rule set. Don't don't even think about trying to do tournament games with the rules that are in the 40k Rogue Trader book. They're just not complete, um, at least to current standards. It's very much a toolkit for, uh, for lack of a better term, less competitive or open-minded gamers to build narrative-driven games. And a lot of the old Hammer folks will know what I'm talking about. But, I mean, there are pages and pages and pages of scenario ideas and story hooks uh, that, that one can use to, to build a, either a campaign or even just a one-off battle. So, as a gaming resource, it's still valuable in that sense, in my opinion. So, that's, it, it's worth picking up for that alone. Now, like I said, the, the rules themselves are not complete as far as we understand that term today. So don't pick this up expecting that you'll just be able to plug and play whatever you want and get cracking it. It's going to take some work to get a, to get a game out of out of this book. But that's okay. I mean it's it's a certain it's a certain playstyle that I think rewards a little bit of planning and some forethought and a little bit of open-mindedness on the part of the gamers. It also, you know, opens up the possibility if you wanted to run 
uh, run a game with a game master. You know, there's there's certainly potential there as well. So, on the balance, I'd say that this is a, this book is an excellent addition to anybody's game library, um, even if you don't play it uh, as a complete game itself. It definitely definitely has some good ideas for, like I said earlier, story hooks or uh, you know plot generation. You know, they they've got different scenario ideas. Uh, just just leafing through the through the book here, for example. So just as an example, some of the some of the plot generators. You know, your first thing that you know, you've got a player motive chart. So you roll D one hundred, and you've got reprisal, investigate new world, investigate oddity on imperial planet, quell a rebellion on imperial planet, support a rebellion on imperial planet, raid and destroy an important target, raid and kill an important person or people. Raid and capture, rescue an important person or item, capture and hold an installation or site, and oddballs and special operations. So you roll your d hundred. Actually, you could probably just do a d ten, and then you take a look further, further on down the line at the what your options are. So just as an example, we'll take a look at oddball situations. Um, just in your mind's eye, imagine you rolled a a forty. It was a daring escape from the high-security jail, but you managed to reach the spaceport and steal a ship before the authorities realized you or your gang were gone. First stop was to travel to your secret hideout and recover the hoard of stolen money and goodies you had hid before your capture. Your betrayal by Abdul Goldberg cost you your liberty, but he'd never get his hands on the loot. As you begin to recover the stash from its burial place in the jungle ruins, you're suddenly attacked. It is none other than the treacherous Goldberg, who probably engineered your escape just so he could follow you and steal your loot. I mean, that's 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 pretty imaginative stuff, and it definitely it definitely allows you to play kind of the open type play that you know Games Workshop uh, really fostered back in the the late '80s and just barely into the early '90s. You know, in addition to the into the plot generator, uh, you've got various subplots you can kick in there also. So I mean, you know, this this doesn't require any particular uh, rule set to use that you know that particular table. I mean, you could use that in any game. Heck, you could use that in a World War II game if you wanted to. You know, it's it's definitely like I said, it's definitely got some value to it. I would definitely recommend this book for anyone who wants to take a nostalgic look at where Warhammer 40,000 came from. Uh, I, I'd also recommend this book for anybody who just wants uh, a little bit more maybe flavor in some of their games. Here, here in a little bit, when I talk with, with Mike, you'll hear us talk about scenario-driven gaming, and this is a good resource for that. You know, it's, it's definitely worth picking up. Even if you're not a Warhammer 40,000 fan currently, if you were back in the day, it's worth picking up. If you're a Warhammer 40,000 fan now, but you weren't then, it's worth picking up to see where it came from. And if you're just not a Warhammer 40,000 fan at all, well, I can't help you. But, you know, it's only the biggest sci-fi infantry and vehicle miniatures game out there. My final rating, I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10 Jacaro Digital Weapons. That wraps up the review. If you like this format, let me know. Uh, if you want to hear more of it, if you've got an idea on how to make my review format a little bit better, that's fine too. I'd like to hear it. 
you know, email or Twitter, the usual ways. Coming up next, my discussion with Mike. And we're back today. I'm joined by Mike Hobbs of the Meeples and Mentors podcast. Uh, Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you, Jay. It's a beautiful, sunny Welsh motor morning, afternoon. It feels like the morning because the clocks have gone forward. Um, but yeah, doing very well. And and yourself? I'm I'm doing fine. Uh, we've got uh, it's definitely morning here at this point. I hear upstairs the pitter patter of little and not so little feet, and uh, they're upstairs getting ready for church. And I'll I'll have to join them. I've already got my shower and shave. I just need to get dressed and. Uh, help get the kids ready and out the door. It's an early church morning for us, but that's okay. Lovely. We're here to talk about something that many of us are probably thinking about doing or have considered doing, but maybe not. And that is, what would it take for Games Workshop to get us old guard, us old hands, the grognards, back into the fold? I mention this because you and I are both old Games Workshop hands, going back into the late 80s and 90s. And it seems to me that Games Workshop has sat down and figured out that they, they, I don't think that they think they need us, but they definitely want us to come back. Is that your, is that your read? Um, yeah, I think they'd like us to revisit some of their products, shall we say. They've, there's definitely been a mind shift, isn't it, over the last few years. And I think we'll probably get into this in a lot more detail later. But the fact that they're revisiting some of the specialist games and looking at standalone board games, um, which all have their their roots back in, you know, dare I say it, our time when when we were young. Right. Um, yeah, it's it, it's interesting and positive. I I do have to say, yeah. whether they'll do it right, I don't know. But they're at least they're trying. Right, right, absolutely. I, I think one of the first things that came about that really signaled this to me was, and I, I should have done better research, but I, my, my timeline's getting messed up, because really, in reality, we're talking the last year, year and a half maybe, when I first started noticing this. I think part of it was with Age of Sigmar, and I didn't recognize it at the time, but now that I think about it, I recognize that this might have been one of their first steps. Uh, if you're not familiar, Age of Sigmar is how they are doing Warhammer Fantasy now. They completely, you know, in their fiction, they destroyed what was called the Old World, which had been the setting for Warhammer Fantasy since the very first first days. And the orcs are now called Greenskins, and the elves are Elven, and it's spelled weird, and uh, the dwarves are something completely different, and the Empire doesn't exist. Basically, they just completely destroyed the old world and brought forth those same factions. They've got some radically different design cues for the factions now. Uh, the most shockingly different is prob- are probably the humans. And now they've got a new dwarf faction that's completely different than anything they've done before as well. But one of the hallmarks of Age of Sigmar when it first came out was they completely did away with points lists. There are no army lists. The rules were greatly simplified. I'm not going to say dumbed down. I will say simplified because simple simple rules don't have to be dumb. I mean, look at chess, for example. Chess has very simple rules, but it's a very deep, engaging game. So, 
that and I started thinking about it here recently, knowing that you and I were going to talk about this, Mike, and the open narrative play style that they they are fostering with Age of Sigmar. And granted, they're back to they do have points lists now, but that open narrative style of play reminds me of you know the kind of the the type of play that they encouraged with Warhammer Fantasy Third Edition and Warhammer. 40,000 Rogue Trader. Yeah, um, it's quite interesting to hear you describe the the change because you've you've looked I mean you you've described the change from a a very narrative point of view. You've you've described how they've done away with their old world and they've moved on to the new world and they've changed the names of the races. I look at it in a completely different perspective. I just look at it that they've stopped doing their big battle fantasy game and they turned and they wanted to do a skirmish fantasy game. And, and that's exactly how I look at it because I was never really invested in, in Warhammer Fantasy it's the mm-hmm. one game that I, I never really played so I just look at it as like okay we've no longer got black blocks of troops we've now got it's essentially a skirmish game and they then then sort of crafted the, the fluff to sort of follow on that timeline but I look at it just as from a, a production point of view right let's not do these let's just do these we can change the bases, we can use some of the figures for now, that's fine. But let's get everybody to buy new armies. Instead of people who've been playing uh, Warhammer Fantasy for you know a long time, just reusing their old figures and adding in a couple of extra characters, which is what I think a lot of people used. Mm-hmm. So some people, I think it was seen as being very cynical at the beginning. I think it was very brave of them to actually sort of say, well, you know, th- this isn't making a sense. It must have been a financial thing, I, you know, to take you right down to bars tracks, they didn't do this out of an altruistic theme. They must have turned around and said, "Well, I'm a fantasy. Isn't making us any money. We've got massive ranges. We need to get people to buy into this project more. Let's stop producing it and let's do something else." Yeah, I, I really think it's just that. And it was brave, and they got slated at the beginning, but I think a lot of people are coming around to it. Right. I, I think that there's definitely. I mean, you can, you can take a look at it, and I'm just merely a casual observer. I've not played a single game of Age of Sigmar. I haven't done so much as even look at the rules. But just as a casual observer, i got to think that they've taken more than a few cues from Privateer Press with their War Machines and Hordes product and gone towards Skirmish. And you can see it with Malifaux also and any number of other fantasy Skirmish games that are out there currently. Um... You know, not just in the game concept, but also a lot of the design cues. You know, they're going for the bigger, more impressive models. And, they, and you kind of saw this towards the end of the the old world. You know, they're going for the bigger, uh, a lot of the bigger models, just like Privateer Press had done. And now they've completely broken from, you know, rank and flank, as some folks refer to it. You know, moving large blocks of troops to the maybe not individual action, but individual movement anyway, hmm. style of, well, just like any other skirmish game. And I agree. I think it was a brave move. I think that they, they suffered the slings and arrows of many of their longtime fans. I note, If you notice, though, a lot of the, a lot of the getting started boxes uh, use, the same, use the same figures as the 8th you know, edition Warhammer. Yeah. You know, in fact, one of their one of their starter sets, the Spire of Dawn, it's it's the Blood Island uh, box, 
You know, it's the exact same figures. It's the exact same elf and Skaven figures. Yeah, but the, the, the difference is people are buying them now, whereas people had them before, they didn't need to buy them again. Now they do because they got different bases. Well, you know, I mean, it's uh, well they sell yeah, they sell round bases. That's it's not a huge yeah. deal. Well, the actually the sets come with square and round bases. Do they really? Yeah, oh, the Spire like... of Dawn set comes with your choice of well, not your choice. It yeah. comes with both round and square bases. That's interesting. Yeah, it's um, I I think they picked up on the fact that uh, the hobby's changing. We can't you know stress this enough. Our hobby is changing. The the hobby that we started playing isn't the hobby that it is now. People right. like skirmish games. They like, they don't want to get into the fact of I need to buy two hundred figures, you know, just to play a game. They want to play a game with thirty, forty figures, fifty maybe. Mm-hmm. So they want the, you know, they want a box set that they can buy that allows them to actually play a game. Right. And then they can expand on it. And Sigma does that. Yeah. Um, like I say, I, I can see a lot of people when I go down to down to Firestorm Games. I see a lot of people playing it, and they enjoying it. And you know, they got there's club campaigns going on, starting small, moving out. Mm-hmm. They they they're actually using the rules for things like um, doing Game of Thrones games. So, I think the the risk the Games Workshop took has paid off. And if you look at the other products they produced since Sigma, um, they're moving more into a lot more sort of box games. Yeah, you know, single, buy a box, play a game. It uses figures from, you know, from fantasy and from 40k and other things, so their production costs are quite low. Um, but it's a game in a box, right? And it's that quick start, and it's getting people interested into the wider world. So yeah, there's definitely been a shift. Yeah, and and not just. And not just number of figures, but also duration of play. I think factors in. Uh, you know, it's it's becoming increasingly rare. I feel that people want to spend four hours on a game, or yeah. or longer. And if you've got, you know, if you've got a large game of fantasy battle, I mean, if you've got four hours, well, you're going to spend an hour of that setting up and an hour tearing down. Now you're left with two hours to play a game in. Mm. You know, and and I think that that's definitely that's definitely indicative of their proximity to the British gaming scene, which, to my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, since you're in it and I'm not, but a lot of gaming takes place on a weeknight uh, at a at a club, and you might have three, maybe four hours to get a game in, and then you have to get everything out because some other group is going to use the the space the next day. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Yeah, most. Most gaming in in the UK is is quite locally based. We we, we got game game clubs all over the place. Right. You know, in um, in the United States, a lot there. Granted, there are a lot of folks who play in their basements or their uh, or romper rooms or whatever they have, and they might be able to afford to leave a game set up. But then again, there's a lot of people that play at the local at their friendly local game store because most most FLGSs in the US have some type of gaming space and again that's a situation where you have usually you've got a set amount of time that you can devote to that and then guess what either someone has that table reserved for the next time slot or you've got to get out before the before the shop closes yeah and 
again, we we have something similar. I mean, I, I'm quite lucky where I live um, because I'm I'm about an hour and a half from from Cardiff, which is uh, you know um, my capital city, um, and it's where I used to work until I've um, sort of swapped jobs and and now I work from home. Um, but I used to drive into Cardiff every day, and I could go to Firestorm Games after work, and and play in there because Firestorm has a massive gaming area. You know they've got space for about seventy odd tables, which are permanently set up, and you just go in and I have a yearly membership to their their, their gaming club, um, so I go in there and grab a table whenever I want and, and play a game. Mm-hmm. Um, now because I've changed jobs, I hardly get a chance to get down there. Yeah. So, um, I basically do probably similar to to you guys. I I go over to a mate's house and play, right? Because I I haven't got a table in the house anymore, and because my cats have taken over that space. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, but yeah, on the whole, we play shorter games, and it's very rare that I want to go and play a game for a whole day. And right. To, to give you an example, yesterday um, I met up with a couple of mates. We went down to Firestorm because it was their famous bring a buy sale day, which they do twice a year. Um, and we grabbed a table and we played all day. But we played two games. So we had a game um, in the morning, mm-hmm. had some lunch because they've got a chef working there as well, and oh, a nice. bar. Oh, it's, it's hard. It's hard, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> bar and a chef. Um, and then we had another game in the afternoon. Mm hmm. You know, and we do that sort of once a month. We all get together, but we always do it. We play two games. We don't just play one long game. Because I don't think any of us have got the appetite for, for playing a, a five or six hour long game anymore. Right. And, and I think I think it's not just amount. It's not just the amount of time we have to play. I wonder if a lot of us have gotten to the point where we can recognize what we want in a game, and if we can get what we want in a game in a short amount of time, that's even better. And it, it just strictly speaking, in a physiological slash psychological aspect, you know, there are those reward points in games, and I wonder if it just it might just be like, well, for lack of a better term, a drug user, where you're looking to get that hit as often or as quickly as you can. And mm those exciting moments where it comes down to a roll of the dice because there, there are some chemical exchanges that go on in our brains when we get down to that one roll and this is going to decide the game and I'm going to hit on anything but a one and I roll the dice and snake eyes, you know, there's or box cars or whatever, whatever it is. There is something in our brains that chemically fires and it hits the reward center of our nervous system and these shorter games allow us to experience that, maybe not as intensely, but more often. Yeah, and I also think that modern rules writing is pushing us towards shorter games. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I mean, I, one of the games we played yesterday, and this is completely off topic, but we played a 15 mil Napoleonic big battle game yesterday using um, set of rules called Over the Hills. Mm-hmm. In the past, whenever I played those games, they have been six, seven hour long games because you spend the first two or three hours just moving your troops into a position where you might just get into combat. Right. You know. The new modern sets of rules, the the movement when you're outside of sort of charge range of any enemy is completely fluid. You yeah. know, you can 
you can move your, your troops you know your cavalry can move two foot across a, a six a six by four table in one move well we'll look at crossfire by Artie conliffe yeah you know, that's, that was so innovative, that game. I you know, couldn't get my head around it. Yeah, that's <laughs> same here. I, I, I bought a copy and looked at it. I'm confused, and I sold it. <laughs> I played it once, and the guy I played it played it a few times. And he tried to explain it to me, but I couldn't get out the mindset of, okay, this is my turn, I'm moving everything yeah. forward. Bang. But but di what, digression what? notwithstanding. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, Games Workshop, you know, 40K and Warhammer, you know, they... Uh, you know, Simon Tonkas picked up a copy of the Rogue Trader reprint and sent it to me. And, uh, you know, after dueling pain, duly paying for it, of course. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, I completely forgotten about the reserve phase. You know, there used to be an additional move for troops that were effectively outside of, you know, outside of, con of direct contact range. And, you know, they kind of streamlined that to where units that weren't within charge range could do a double move. But yeah, I mean that's exactly what that is. It's a mechanism to get, you know, to get moving quicker, you know, to get in position quicker. I mean, there's, there's definitely something there where, you know, you're you're spending all this time worrying about moving in position and whatnot. When in reality, what we want to do is we want to come to grips. You know, anytime you see an article online uh, about how to run a convention game, you know, almost all of them say start your forces in a position where you're going to come to grips within a turn, you know, yeah. within a turn or two. Yeah, because, exactly. You know, for a, for an American-style game convention, you've got usually a three, maybe four-hour block of time until, you know, unless you've already made pre-arrangements with the convention organizers, you've got to get your game set up and set up, run, and packed up in that time. Mm. Do you also think the scenario design has in, improved over the last 20 years? Whereas... Because before, every single game, it didn't matter what it was, the scenario seemed to be you line up on one table edge, mm -hmm. and then you move together. Now scenarios are, you know, you might have, you might be a case of you set up in the middle and somebody's on on the side, or somebody's going to be coming in from the corners, or you've got flanking attacks. So you've got, it, it seems that scenario design has been improved to again give you a narrative of you know right. why these troops are in battle. You know it's. This scenario is I'm I have to hold this objective. I'm surrounded. That gives you the narratives. You know where you are. Your your troops are stuck there. You've got no reserves. You have to hold. And the attacker has to get in and kick you out of there. You know. Right. So it, it's that, and it it forces you to get into combat or getting well getting close to the enemy quite quickly. So I think that has a lot to do with it as well. But I don't know how much of that has got to do with 40k uh, with um, sorry games workshop products. Right. I, I think well just just real quick as an aside I think you'll find you know Henry if you're listening Henry Hyde if you're listening I'm sure you're you're screaming at <laughs> your whatever you podcast with because of the mounds of books about particular particular scenarios that were printed in the 60s and 70s so forgive us us younger guys for forgetting that but uh, no I think I think when it comes to you know set them up and bash them down I don't think that there are many people who do that much anymore yeah. but I mean even still you take a look at you know you look in the back of the Rogue Trader book and Dag Nabbit there are pages and pages and pages for story ideas for for books or for for uh, games and you know little you know I don't want to use the term side quest but you know additional 
additional objectives to meet and things of that nature. So I think maybe we we were just lazy for a while as gamers because because the yeah. it was there. Mm. You know, it was certainly there and we just we were just lazy. Yeah. Could be it. But but getting back to GW specifically. Um well, heck, even in second edition, they had those. They had mission cards in second edition, forty k. So, yeah, I think we just got lazy. Yeah, but uh, maybe, maybe it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that I think for some of us, there's so many different rules to try, and so many different games. Because I, in you know, in the late '90s in particular, I had a, I had a pretty well-paying job for a single guy living in a mid, you know, one of the upper middle tier cities you know I lived in Kansas City at the time and rent wasn't terribly expensive and I had a pretty well good you know pretty good paying job so yeah I bought into a lot of different game systems to the point where you know over the course of a year we might have gotten into two or three major games or even four so when you're gaming every week or every other week you might have you know a across that year you might have six or seven sessions with a game set or a rule set and then you're on to another rule set so that doesn't allow you the time I feel to really come to grips with what you can do with the system and start doing a little bit more imaginative uh, scenario play if that makes sense oh uh, yeah I mean as, as a wargaming butterfly um, I know exactly what you're talking about yeah, you. I tend to dip into rules, try them out a few times, play them three or four times, and then there's something else on the radar that I want to do. Yeah. And then maybe a year or so later, I'll circle around back around to that game. Right. Yeah. But getting back to GW specifically. Yeah. So they've done. They did Age of Sigmar, which some people hated, some people love. Uh, on the balance, from what I can tell, people are people are you know digging it. Not everybody that was in a Warhammer likes it. But you know what? It's also introduced people to Warhammer who wouldn't play it otherwise. Yeah. So maybe maybe it's a balance, and I don't have the numbers in front of me. I believe their sales numbers indicate that it's worked out for them because they do have, if they're not increasing sales at the very least, they're holding steady, but their profits have increased, and that's what's mm. really important for a company. Yeah, I think it's introduced a lot more people to the game. I think a lot of time people were scared of getting into it because of the figure yeah. that you needed. Yeah, you, you hop down to the store and you see folks playing with two, three hundred figures, and it's intimidating. Yeah. But you see them playing with twenty, thirty. Oh, I can do that. You know. Yeah. Especially when you can use nice big chunky ones. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think like we said, it's it's a brave move, and. You know, there's nothing wrong with getting new blood into the into the hobby, or even even folks, you know, new blood into your aspect of the hobby. So yeah. I, I think you know, good for them. You know, I don't see myself playing it anytime soon, but I'm certainly going to take advantage of the reduced price on starter sets. You know, when I'm collecting and trying to collect a large Skaven army, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and yeah. I can get. Gosh, how many are in that set? Forty. Well, there's forty basic clan rats, and then you know a couple of rat ogres and a couple of weapons teams, and you know my brother and I can buy a set because he's collecting elves, and you know at retail price we can both kick in forty bucks and get what would normally cost us sixty if we were just buying separate units. 
Absolutely. Why wouldn't we? Yeah, their their starter sets and the box sets have been really good value. Yeah. Um, they they did one for forty k, which had um, three of the night models in it, which are usually going for about I think about fifty pounds each. Mm-hmm. And they were selling that for eighty pounds. Yeah. Um, whatever the the equivalent is in in dollars. Um, it's probably about the same now these days. Um, <laughs> not quite. <laughs> not, not quite. quite. But, but you know that was a great, you know, great deal. And yeah, they, yeah, they are doing these little box sets, these interesting little intro games. There's, like you say, there's been a mindset. Yeah, a couple of things, a couple other things that point me toward them wanting to get the old guard back. Uh, the specialist games, bringing back the specialist games. They've they've tried a couple times with Space Hulk. The most recent Space Hulk was what three, four years ago at this point. Oh, that's been re- yeah, that's been released about three or four times, isn't it? They yeah. Seem every six months to find a new couple of pallets in the back of the warehouse. Yeah. And the, it comes uh, back out again. Well, the most recent Space Hulk. I'm not gonna say it's their best game they ever did, but it is one of their better games that they ever did. Um. Because it hits it hits the right notes. It's got that combination of tense gameplay if you're doing it right, and if you're doing it, if the people you're playing with are into it also. It's got relatively simple rules that it, just about anybody can pick up. And as, as as I've said before, it's the movie Aliens. You know, you put the you put the Colonial Space Marines in U.S. Colonial Marines, not Space Marines, but you put the U.S. Colonial Marines in Terminator armor, and that's what it is, and that's okay. Um, yeah, it, but, yeah, Space uh, Hulk was a really good game, a, a, a really important game as well. I think. Oh, absolutely! I think it's one of the most important games they released because they, they've they've always done board games and they've always done box games. I I got in my I, I bought my first for, uh, Game Workshop product back in the early eighties, which is possibly before you were born. Um, no, I was born in seventy four. Let's let's not okay. Phew. Let's not put me in the corner <laughs> just yet. That's okay then. So yeah, I, I bought my first game uh, when I was sixteen, early eighties, and I and I was Warhammer Fantasy, um, the the first edition of that, and I I actually bought Warhammer Fantasy second edition as well for some reason, which I, and I never played either of them, but um, but they always had board games coming out at that time, mm-hmm. and then forty k hit because you know forty k hit early, um, later, I got more into. I really got into Games Workshop products in the sort of mid '80s, I think. Well, no, so a bit later, '89, '90, when I picked up Epic, and I picked, you know, and Space Hulk was coming around. I think Space Hulk was a few years later than that. I think Space Hulk was sort of mid '90s when it first came out. Yeah, '90 or '91. Yeah, somewhere in there. And I, yeah, and I remember I I picked picked it up and I played it. I thought this is you know it it was different. It was completely different. I never played a game like it. And even though I come from a role playing background, and I thought it's just a dungeon bash, but it wasn't. You know, because a dungeon bash you go from room to room and kill whatever's in the room until you get to the big room and then you try and kill whatever's in that room. Space Hulk was really like you know it, it, like you say it was aliens. It was you're surrounded. It was. You know, a small group of elite people against a big group of non-elite right. um, troops, and is it is it quantity or is it quality that's going to pay out? It's, it's that old Stalin-esque theme, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. Quantity has quality all its own. Yeah. Um, but the them bringing that back, however many times they have, you know, 
I wonder how many sets. Yeah, I, I got to think that they're reselling that game to folks over and over again. Oh and, yeah. And I can't I can't fault them for that. I mean, another game that they brought back whole cloth is is Blood Bowl. Mm. You know, they're not reskinning it. They're not naming it something else. It's just Blood Bowl. And my understanding is the rules, they might have tweaked the rules somewhat, but it's still basically the same game. Yeah, I believe so. I, I never got into Blood Bowl. Uh, I think the only change they've made is they've made the figures bigger. Yeah. The um, uh, great game plays a little... It, it takes a little long to play out a full game. I want to say a full eight turn... Well, eight turns per half game. Even if you really know what you're doing, you're still looking at an hour and a half. Yeah. And I know that, uh, well, you got into uh, Dreadball, didn't you? No, no. I, I, I tried it once, thought it was okay. Or was it Neil um, that got into Dreadball? Yeah, Neil and Mike are the, the big Dreadball people. Okay. Um, the re-release of Blood Bowl, I got to think, you know, because there's still, even without any support from Games Workshop, there is still a pretty vibrant uh, Blood Bowl community going on. Uh, to the point where they were making their own dice and having their own tournaments, and you could, you know, if you go to a certain tournament, you could get the special, you know, the the block the block dice in special colors for that particular tournament and that sort of thing. So I think that they're they're obviously they're obviously taking a look at their own community and realizing that there are still rich veins to tap. And, yeah, indeed. And I can't I mean, fault them for it. No. They also tried it um, a couple of years back with um, a game called Dreadfleet. Yeah. Which was, uh, I was really looking forward to because um, I used to play Man of War again back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had a few fleets and I've still got them and I still play it. I mean, every year or so I'll get it out, me, me and my mate, and we'll have a game. And it's a fantastic game. And I thought, oh, Dreadfleet, that's going to be great. And it was awful. I, I looked at it, I, I luckily didn't buy it. I looked at the demo and you're just like, what is this? This is just... Yeah, the rules no, were completely different, if I understand. Yeah, and it wasn't... It just seemed to be a group of individuals... It's literally like, let's, let's just do one ship for every single race, and we'll pull them on the map and see what happens. Yeah. And uh, that, that didn't work. Well, that, that brings to mind something that I've noticed, is that they are bringing back the old, older specialist games... But in the case of Space Hulk and in the case of Blood Bowl, they're not doing anything new. No. Really. They're not really... I mean, yeah, they're nicer figures. They're, it's nicer production values. You know, nicer boards and, you know, ancillary products. You know, chits and tokens and whatnot. But they're not doing anything new. And no. I'm, I'm, I'm taking a look at this Shadow War uh, Armageddon that they're coming out with, which is supposedly something along the lines of a reboot of Necromunda. And again, it taking a look at what they have released, they released a basically a picture of a of the force of a force list for a, apparently a gene stealer cult force and it's got this the old same uh stat line for Necromunda which, you know, with movement, you know, movement weapon skill, ballistic skill, strength, toughness, initiative, attacks, leadership. You know, mm. just like Necromunda did, second edition 40k, you know, nothing nothing really out of the ordinary there. And, and I wonder, are, are they sticking with that to be familiar for the old folks, you know, for us old folks? Or are they just out of ideas? Or are they 
don't have any innovators in their design uh, house anymore. But then again, I wonder with with games like Dreadfleet, did they try to do something new and didn't fully form the idea or didn't push it enough or just they simply don't have good game designers anymore and they're just basically standing on the shoulders of giants at this point? Um, I mean, I hate to be pessimistic yeah. like that, but yeah, it that's the appearance. That's that's how it appears to me. I think they could get good games designers if they wanted them. I still and this could be slightly controversial. With with Sigma, they they completely changed the the game, but they still. It still sort of follows a little bit of some of what we see in, in all of their games, which is the I go, you go stuff. You know, mm -hmm. There's nothing really innovative in the rules. They've changed all the sat lines, they've changed all how figures work, but they've kept this standard sort of move, shoot, close combat, you know, um, which they've been doing since um, Ad Nauseam. Um, I, I do sort of wonder with these reboots that they're trying out. Whether they're doing them almost like a pilot, I, I I see a lot of these as being almost like um, TV show pilots. Mm -hmm. Maybe they want to bring them out, see what the reaction is before they maybe buy into them a little bit more. Um, you know, they might release a couple of extra packs. I, I think for for Blood Bowl they've released a couple of extra um, teams. But if if you look at sort of Necromunda, because I I never really played Necromunda. That was sort of um, Hive War sort of stuff, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. So you had you you had your gangs. Yeah, you you had your gang. You you bought your gang. You outfitted it initially. You got to pick you know the types of figures you had and the types of weapons and equipment they had. And then as you played, you you know each each figure depending on what it did. You know, you know you, it might increase in in its skills and progress and whatnot. And as time goes on, the gangs get tougher and hopefully they're they're uh, keeping up with each other but just like any other just like any other game with progression you know one guy's yeah. going to end up being better than all the rest and it all just kind of falls apart yeah yeah there's, I, there's only from what I've there. seen with this Shadow War Armageddon they're kind of leaning towards that again but they're opening it up to pretty much all the factions in the 40k universe it's not just different gangs on this one mm. particular planet so and, and I think that's a smart move. There's a vlogcaster or vidcaster, whatever you want to call him, on uh, on YouTube called his uh, channel is called Tabletop Minions, and he uh, he goes by the name Adam Smasher, and uh, he he basically put forth that's a smart move on GW's part because they can draw in people that already have figures. But for the new folks coming in, you know, if they don't want to play Orcs or Space Marine Scouts, they can get any any basic troop box off the shelf and play with that. Yeah. And they don't mm. have to sculpt any new any more new figures. You know, and of course if you're already playing forty K you can use those those orcs and Space Marine Scouts also, or sell them to a buddy, or you and a buddy go together and, and split the box or what have you. So I, I think that that in itself is a smart move, the way they're going about it. But, uh, you know, by the same token, maybe from their standpoint, if it's not broke, don't fix it. 
yeah, maybe it is just that. You know, depends how cynical you want to be. Um, yeah. There, there is a lot of love for these old games, and why would you want to bring back an old game and re completely rechange it? So, so the only thing you've kept is the title, because everyone will go, well, that's not the game I played. Right. So yeah, maybe they just stick to you know these are the rules that we used to use. Off you go and play with them. Yeah. And yeah, I I kind of get that. It, it's going to be for me the thing that's going to be really interesting is the epic Armageddon reboot that they're doing. Yeah. Because you know, a huge epic fan, mm-hmm. always have been. Right. Um, and they're so they're redoing what was the original first game, which was Adeptus Titanicus. Mm-hmm. Um, mighty robots fighting in the age of heresy. I seem to remember. Yeah. Um, so they're redoing that. Uh, so we were going to have some great new titans, but they're doing them at eight mil instead of six mil, so mm-hmm. they're going to be bigger and more impressive. And I've. I've heard people on the sort of various epic forums going, "Oh, that's a mistake because th- when they do the new ranges, they're all going to be the wrong, the wrong size." And I, I'm sat there going, "They're not going to do new ranges. They're going to just do this as a box set. That, why would Games Workshop put so much money into completely rebooting the epic system with the thousands of different figures in there when they don't know if it's going to sell? They right. just do a little box set similar to what they did with Space Hulk." And maybe the Necromunda one, and you know, it comes out. People buy it because I mean, I'll I'll, I'll go off and buy it because it, it'll remind me of when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, my my mid twenties at that stage. Um. So I'll buy it for that. But. I I can't see them going off and producing, the whole range of figures that they had in the past because I don't think it's financially viable. Right. Especially at, at a completely different scale. Right. Right. So, and, and you mentioned something interesting. You know, you're going to buy it because, you know, it reminds you of when you're a kid. Absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. there's, uh, you know, there's something, there's certainly something to be said for nostalgia. I mean, look at, I mean, just take a look at the, the old Hammer community that exists, you know, and guys that are going out and looking for the older figures for, you know, they like the aesthetic better, they like the gameplay better, you know, third edition fantasy rogue trader maybe second edition uh 40k you know and it very definitely appeals to them because that's that's what they wanted in those you know that's that's what they played in those days and they want to get back to that and it's certainly understandable now something that caught my eye in the last year or so was a game they came out with called death watch overkill you know that's the one that had the gene stealer cult force in it yeah and I was a big Gene Stealer cult guy in the latter days of Rogue Trader and second edition now I didn't go out and buy it because you know again 40k is one of those things that I'm I'm not into 40k I don't want to play the current 40k but I, I I wonder if that was something that they specifically did in an attempt to get us older guys to take notice because I certainly took note I didn't buy it I didn't take that much notice but you know I, I did I did take notice you know and I'm certainly looking a lot harder at their website these days yeah they've yeah they have got some interesting stuff yeah um, I, I like yourself I, I also looked at that um, and thought oh, that's interesting you know because it's a single product yeah it's something I can just play um, but again 
I was tempted, but I didn't get into it. Like yourself, I sort of like the I I like the idea of the Gene Steeler cult. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I looked at it, but no, I didn't. I didn't buy it. The only thing I think at the moment I would go off and buy when it comes out would be this this epic game. Yeah, and that is just purely because it's epic. Um, I will probably wait and see a few reviews of it first before I do buy it, but right. I would probably go off and buy that one. But, um, so. If they continue with this apparent strategy of appealing to the old guard, what would it take? What do you think it would take to get you back in the fold? And by in the fold, I mean at least buying one of their, I don't want to say a flagship product, but one a major product, a major, maybe a boxed game or starter army set, what have, what have you. What do you think it would take to get you back? Um, new, different, innovative rules. Mm-hmm. Was that? Uh, it's for me now. There's so much choice out there, and I I kind of look at it. So I look at Sigma as being a large skirmish game. I see 40k as being the same level. There's so much choice in in that area for for rules and figures, but they would have to do something really really special for me to go off and buy it because I just go around well if 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 I want a sci-fi game I'll I'll use you know I'll use this game or I'll use that game or I'll, I'll go off and use these figures because I really like these figures these figures look great you know it's and it, again it, it all comes down to how you perceive your war game for, for me I, I've never been a fan of Big Battle 28 mil games mm-hmm. I, I just don't think they look right I think 28 mil is best suited for large skirmishes and down to gang size games. You know, for 30, 40 figures down to about six figures aside. Mm-hmm. When you start looking at big battle games, like you know, like uh, Warhammer Fantasy used to be, I just don't think it looks right in 28 mil. I think, it, but I thought it looked great with um, 10 mil, and that's why I bought lots of Warmaster. Right. Hated the rules, but I love the figures. And. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's that. I mean, I, I used to play a lot of 40k, but I only played with a couple of friends. I wouldn't go down and just go, you know, go down to a club night and pick up a game with somebody because most 40k players really irritate me. You know, for for me and my mates, we play games for fun. Right. We don't play to win. We just play, you know, it, it gets us away from thinking about work or real life for a couple of hours. And if I can play with pretty figures with nice rules, that's all I wanted. So we played 40k because it was there. But you know, and it was the the easiest sci-fi skirmish game to get into mm-hmm. because there was a shop on the on the high street you could walk right. into and buy stuff. Um, nowadays, there's there's choice. Yeah, oh yeah. And they would have to do something really, really interesting to get me back in, and by interesting, completely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. I I wonder if, in this regard, at this point, they might be victims of their own success. You know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, there's a risk where, if they do come out with something new and innovative with an old name, someone will say, "Well, it's not that old name." Yeah. You know? And you know, the best thing they could have done with Dreadfleet is just call it Dreadfleet and not try to call it Man of War version 2 because you know it's 
drastically different, drastically different rules. And well, actually, in their credit, they did just call it Dreadfleet. We all just yeah. went, "Oh, it's it's right. It's it's a naval game in the Warhammer world. That's that's Man of War. That is." Yeah. No, it's not. It can be. Yeah, game. to their credit, you know, and I think it's interesting that here we are talking about what what can they do to get us back, and we're. And I'm with you. It'd have to be something innovative, but I don't think that's the company that they are. You know, no. I think they know they know what horse their wagon is hitched to, and they're not gonna they're not gonna change lightly. And no. I think um, that these let's be honest, Jake. We're not their demographic. They're not. No. We're not the people that they're after. They, I, I think, five ten years ago, they were looking. Their, their demographic was. 13 to 23 year olds mm -hmm. I think now the demographic is 13 to 33 34 year olds I think they're trying to hold on to their players longer by giving the you know because you, you see it all the time you see the the sort of 13 14 year olds who get into 40k and they spend all their pocket money and all their birthday money and all the Christmas stuff getting an army uh, and they glue those arm the figures together and they play with them and then when the next army comes out they sell the army they got and they buy the brand new army because it's the better one so you've got this churn and churn and churn and churn and they get to the mid-twenties and they work out that actually this is a bit rubbish so they drop out I think now G GW are trying to hold on to those players by giving them more options of hey have you looked at this similar right. to an old game you, used to do. you know it's in the box it's going to cost you a hundred quid go and buy it and people say oh it's a box there we go I can buy that so you're, you're mid 20 plus you'll probably played 40k in um, Warhammer you know when they were kids and I'll go and mm, okay I can play this because it's standalone I don't have right. to buy any more stuff so maybe, I, I think they're trying to do that and if they can appeal to people like us from a you know rose into glasses point of view from when, when we were young mm -hmm. all, all the better but they don't care about us. We're, yeah. we're just the icing on the cake. Right. I don't, I, I don't mean that nasty, but we're not their demographic. Yeah. One one they, thing that you know, th but, thanks to the thanks to the vagaries of of time and whatnot, as as we're recording this, I will in the future record a review of the Warhammer Forty Thousand Rogue Trader reprint, which is going to be at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> if you can. <laughs> wrapped your head around that so the review that you just listened to I haven't recorded yet but uh, I think that I think that that particular product is a nod to us old guys yeah but that one definitely it's, is it's not an attempt to get us back in the fold no and I, I think you and I are of agreement that the the games workshop ship for us has sailed. Yeah, and and we just didn't get on it, and we're we're not going to try to catch up with it for the most part because we've got, you know, ambush alley and two fat lardies and, uh, you know, everything else that's out there that is more innovative, more interesting to us delivers the type of experience that we want to have and you know I, I still buy GW stuff you know I'm, I'm buying you know Skaven and, and Undead and 
Empire when I can, but I'm also injecting other companies, other companies' figures. So, or I'm looking for the old stuff, you know. So it's not. Yeah, I, I definitely think, unfortunately, that ship has sailed for us. We've got good memories from when we when we were on the ship earlier, but we've just found a found a different ship or ships. Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, it's quite interesting looking at my my sort of figure collection. Um, and I can actually look up from where I'm sat now and I can see my 40k Dark Angels army and my Renegades army and a couple of the new Space Hulk figures painted up and some tanks and if I look over to the other cabinet um, I can see my old epic armies and my Warmaster armies which have all been repurposed for other games but the, the 40k stuff is still on the original 25mm round bases and I keep thinking, you know, I want a game to play those because I, I do kind of like the background for 40k, mm-hmm. you know, and and also for Warhammer, I I, I like their their universe, um, and I'd like to be able to play a game using those figures, not as as proxies, but as this is a 40k style game, right. but with better rules, right. So we'll, that, we'll talk that, that's later. One of my never-ending searches. <laughs> we'll talk later about that, Mike. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, no, I I'm with you. Great memories, you know. Mm-hmm. I'll probably take a look at Shadow War Armageddon. I probably won't get into it, but I'll probably take a look at it anyway. Um, because I I've got great memories of playing Necromunda. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, heck, I've, I'm I'm touching my Necromunda box right now. You can if you can hear that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's. We'll see. We'll see. Well, I think that's. I think that's about. Uh, I think we've beaten that horse to death at this point. Yeah. So, um, I was going to say, could I do a bit of selfless um, self-promotion? Well, of course. Thank you. Um, as I say, I'm really into Epic, and when Epic sort of died for me, I I, I took it hard, but I kept all my armies. But there's been. Um, over the last 20 years, there's been a um, a project run by fans of Epic called NetEpic, mm-hmm. where they've kept the second edition rules alive and they tweaked them and they changed around the orders. Um, and in a, a few weeks, I'm recording a podcast on on the Meeple side, where we got the one of the guys who runs NetEpic, and uh, we got Ken Whitehurst who's written Polyversal, mm-hmm. and we. Uh, we've got a few other people coming on and we're basically going to talk it's going to be a big love fest for Epic but we're going to talk mainly about how fans can keep games alive and it buys into what you said about Old Hammer mm-hmm. and also Blood Bowl you know, just because a game stops getting produced it doesn't mean it has to die Right. and if people you know, try their hardest to keep a, a game alive it, it, it can stay alive well, so we're going yeah, to explore I mean, that well absolutely, I mean when was the last time you saw new rules for chess? Exactly. Well, um, didn't Alessio Cavatori try to do something a few years back? Well, I mean, that's a bolt-on system. I mean, that's not that's not <laughs> yeah. from the original publishers. No. <laughs> Who are the original publishers? <laughs> Some Indian guy, I guess. Yeah. Someone on the su- someone on the subcontinent. From what the, I understand. These, these Sumerians, eh? <laughs> yeah. So. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll keep an eye out for that and uh, or an ear, I should say, 
and and Mike, thanks very much for for coming on the show again. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jay. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoy my discussions with our friends over the pond. So, with that in mind, folks, as always, if the war gaming you're having isn't fun, well, you make it fun. That is all. The Veteran War Gamer is copyright Jay Arnold, 2017. Be sure to leave a review on iTunes. Discussion on the blog at theveteranwargamer.blogspot.com. Music courtesy of bensound.com.